Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 35 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by Legacy Specialists RQ and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Shortly, we will be hearing from Colin Donovan, president of Styco Mutual Insurance Risk Retention Group, and Scott Mildrum, economic and macro strategist at Performer, an investment management firm based in Vermont. Colin, Scott, and I will be presenting at the VCIA virtual annual conference on 11th of August, and we're going to give listeners a small preview of that presentation. But first, I couldn't be happier to welcome our latest guest co-host. Ward Ching is a managing director at Aon based in San Francisco and works with some of the largest accounts on the West Coast, including many Silicon Valley companies. Ward, we originally were going to record this interview all the way back in March at Seeker, but of course, the pandemic scuppered those plans. Uh, but it's a real pleasure to have you on and, and welcome to the Global Captive podcast. Richard, so happy to be here with you today, too. Thank you so much. So, Ward, uh, perhaps you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about your current role and also your previous involvement with captives. Sure. Um, At Aon, I am responsible for captive operations in the Western region, although I practice internationally. So I have three domicile centers that report into me. That's Vancouver, Hawaii, and Arizona, although um, these centers will manage captives across the United States as necessary. I do a lot of work in Cayman, a lot of work in Bermuda, and work in Europe. Um, I've been in the captive space since 1979. Uh, So I've seen a lot of the evolutions in terms of both onshore and offshore and was one of the individuals that helped Hawaii develop as a domicile 33, 34 years ago. Fantastic. So long, long, long history. And I've got lots of good friends in Hawaii and I'm looking forward to getting out there one day, one day myself. Um, Ward, there are plenty of topics I'd I'd love to discuss with you uh, today. And and we could definitely talk for a couple of hours, I think. But I thought maybe it best to begin by asking you to expand upon an article that I saw you publish earlier this year, in fact, with the Hawaii Captive Insurance Council on your concept titled Next Gen Risk Finance. It seems from the article that you, you see the real need for a kind of a fundamental shift in the way organizations quantify and price their risk portfolios of the captive playing a very central role, something I always love to hear. What's this all about, Ward, and and why do you think we need new ways of of trading risk? Well, next-gen risk finance really developed uh, in the mid-2000s when I was over at Safeway. And really what I was interested in doing was understanding the economic and efficient trade-off between risk transfer and risk retention. Uh, When I was at Safeway, we had a number of programs that had low retentions, but extraordinarily high total cost of risk. And so I was working with a number of colleagues, including Bill Zachary uh, and and the finance teams around the question of whether or not the premium was efficient. And we clearly saw that analytically it wasn't. And what we also saw was that it was necessary to really take advantage of everything that had been done from a risk management standpoint loss control, safety, um, engineering. We were doing infrared scanning uh, in our plants and in our distribution centers, but we were not getting credit for that in the marketplace. And so we had had two captives, one onshore and one offshore. And what I was thinking about was, can I create an enhanced framework, enterprise risk management framework around what we're doing, employ new tools or enhanced tools analytically to see the efficient frontier trade-offs? And thirdly, how do I use my captive to become what I was referring to as, as becoming the underwriter of choice? So fast forward to 
2020. And what we're seeing is, is this framework, which is really um, a slightly more advanced risk management framework, starts with the assumption that we can see things in the data, risk management data, that we couldn't see five years ago. We are now very clearly in a position to see uh, performance information, behavioral information, stock price information, market share information in the risk management data. And we did that. We did that originally over at Safeway, and we are now doing that uh, for some of our largest customers. So seeing things in the data we couldn't see before, lagging indicators, now looking at them as leading indicators. Secondly, by being able to take apart that risk management information more analytically and more specifically, we are now in a position to better understand underwriting. In other words, when a, when a carrier underwrites your risk by line of coverage, they look at frequency, severity, they look at your exposures, and they impose their portfolio. In other words, their capital charge. If I were to strip away that capital charge and look specifically at, at your risks organically, would I arrive at the same price? So what we've now done is we've borrowed from investment theory and we've created what we now call a strike price. So if we do um, analytic analysis, we use big data, we use benchmarking, we use a variety of tools, including some new econometrically based um, actuarial tools. Can I establish for a line of coverage the strike price, which would be the price that I would be prepared to pay to myself to take that layer, to take that sliver, whatever that or that retention position, whatever the case may be. That's changing the way we are, are thinking about the dialogue in the marketplace. So we did this when we were at Safeway, where I was in the marketplace, let's say on the property program, and I showed every carrier what my strike price position was. So in other words, if they were renewing with me above that strike price, there was no trade. If we were at strike price or below, there was a potential for trade. At the same time, you can establish what the strike price is for higher retentions. So use of data, looking at strike price in the port, and then, and then next looking at portfolio. So looking at all of your hazard, potentially operational and human capital risks together in a portfolio using strike price orientations. And, and what that's done is it created, what it certainly did for me when I was at Safeway, it certainly creates now the opportunity for the client to become the underwriter of choice. In other words, they're behaving like a well-informed underwriter with respect to their own organic risks. That changes the dialogue in the marketplace. It changes the way you deploy premium. And in most cases, we're taking premium potentially out of the marketplace. The question is, where do you put it? And the answer is you put it in your captive. So your captive becomes a more active tool. Um, it, it does what it normally does in terms of taking on premium, taking on retention, et cetera. But it's looking opportunistically at where they could that, that captive could potentially play. So, so NextGen is really about um, thinking differently about risk. Um, taking more credit and opportunity for retention within the organization, applying that knowledge towards strategy and, and helping senior leadership to sort of see around the corners in terms of where the risk appetite is, where the new opportunities might be, where you might be able to use your captive to more expansively create a relationship with your customers, creating a stickier, more engaged customer base. And, and that's, that's what NextGen is really all about.
What I really like about that is we often hear from consultants and captive managers that you can use the captive as a almost like a negotiating tool, a soft negotiating tool to, to when, it, when you're going for a new. So say, you know, we can always put it into the captive, but it seems like you, this, this approach with the strike price makes that really clear. You know, it makes that really in your face and say, look, this is the price we're prepared to put it in the captive with. What, what can you do for us? Yeah. And, and really what we're trying to do is say to the market, you're an important partner. Um, but but information has been asymmetrical for quite some time. You have tools uh, that you use for pricing. I have now the same tools and actually better tools because I know my risk much better than you do. I see it every day. I'm organically in it. I am dealing with senior leadership. I'm dealing with communications. And oh, by the way, I'm using my tools as a strategic wedge. I'm not here to necessarily displace the marketplace. I'm trying to make it more efficient. So in the case of Safeway, we made the decision that we wanted to be in the catastrophic catastrophic position. We wanted to take all the noisy retail behaviors out of the marketplace and assume it ourselves because we could do that very, very well. What we wanted was the market to come in and provide us with catastrophic cover. And the question was, where does that attach? How does that attach and at what price? Well, what we did was determine that. Where do you, you mentioned about obviously having having these tools and, and these insights into your own risk, risk risk profile and that kind of changing the scales almost. Where, where do you think companies? An area that I've been wanting to explore with the podcast is with companies like RMS or, or AIR worldwide and the kind of these big modeling companies. Now I know Aon can do a, a degree of that work, I believe, or maybe all of that. You'd say at, at Aon, but where do you think could we see captives? actually in enlisting uh, the services of those companies, which you have traditionally kind of pitched work to the underwriters? Uh, the big captives I'm talking about particularly. Yes, yes, exactly. If, if you treat your captive as a true underwriting exercise or uh, tool, uh, a venue, then you should be organizing your captive in terms of underwriting, investments, claims, and possibly innovation. The captive should be, it, it, when it gets to a specific size, uh, and I can't tell you what that size might be, but usually mm -hmm. the larger ones, they should be deploying those tools. They, they can either do it themselves or they can outsource that. But certainly the, the CAT tools are tools that need to be uh, explored and used. My, ex, my expectation is that the cost for those tools will um, be reducing over time as they become more efficient and as new tools come to the play. But if you're going to become the underwriter of choice, using your captive as the receptacle to carry that risk, then you have to do that analysis. But more importantly, you need to align your 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 perspective and your philosophy with senior leadership. So senior leadership views risk, risk management, loss control, safety as integral to their um, strategic forward look as well. So one of, one of the things we have been doing with, with many of our captives is to organize an innovation committee so that the parent organization might have a risk-related question um, that certainly goes to risk management and goes to uh, audit or whoever else, legal, but asks the captive the question, if we are moving in this direction, what are the economics associated with this change? And have the captive be the consultant to the parent and have the captive, if it has the right resources, actually pay for that consulting exercise. So I, I'm seeing as a result of new tools, as a result of slightly different perspectives, as a result of the kinds of questions that need to be answered, I'm seeing the captive, along with these other capabilities like NextGen, becoming a much more enhanced strategic tool for the parent. No, really, really interesting. Of course, we're in a in a 
yeah, particularly hard market right now. I don't think we see much possibility of it easing in the next 12 months. How does that change a conversation, if at all, with the market? If you're taking, let's say that you're taking this next gen risk finance approach uh, now with, with a handful of clients and you're talking to the market, does, this, is, does the hard market make this opportunity even greater or does it not make much difference? It, 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 it does. It does make it greater because it gives you insights as to how your program in your stack chart or Mudbap or however you call your charts. It gives you insights into which parts of your program are efficient or an opportunity to take on the risk yourself. Most organizations, the sophisticated organizations understand where the efficient frontier trades are. The question is, can they fund for them? What we're doing is showing you not only where the trade opportunities are, but what, at what price. And so what that does is it changes the conversation with the marketplace around how do they participate, how they get assigned. Let's say you have a, um, a quota share program with several layers, which ones of those partners are the best positioned to provide you with the right protections at the right price. You can now have a conversation around a signing up or a signing down or eliminated carriers from the discussion as a result of the analytics. Fantastic. And in terms of uh, the hard market a bit more broadly, Ward, how are you seeing your, your clients react you know, captive wise to the hard market? Is it just a classic thing of just taking higher retentions, maybe being more interested in quota share reinsurance? How, how are captives playing a role in kind of helping their clients in this market? Yeah, you're, you're seeing all of that. I mean, clients are being forced into higher retention positions. But I would argue if you do the math, um, they should have been in those retention positions to begin with. Uh, now they know. Uh, they know what the what the financial uh, consequences are. Now, granted, over the last several years, the market made it really easy for organizations not to take the higher retentions. The pricing was advantageous to the client. That table has turned. COVID-19 and what's happened in the international marketplace in conjunction with cat losses, in conjunction with, with all of the other issues that are sitting out there, is causing the, the risk-bearing units, the, the carriers, capital markets, et cetera, to think differently about how they deploy capital. What are their ROI, ROE necessary to stay in business? And that's changing for the customer. Those customers that have captives have a leverageable tool. And if they have the right information in place, they, they should be able to see not only by line of coverage where their opportunities might exist, but more importantly, across portfolio. So, you know, we've been talking about integrated risk for quite some time, and there are only a couple, three examples of that in the marketplace. But we've had the opportunity to talk about basket aggregate programs for quite some time. And right now, people are looking at that analytically and with captives at the down low end of their risk scale. So it's it's in their retention positions. So not just take a retention on workers' compensation and general liability and property separately, put them in a portfolio because then you can actually create a portfolio effect. Again, the same sort of thing that insurance carriers and financial markets do to hedge their risks. Well, we'll be hearing more from Ward in the second half of this episode, but now it is time to hear from my two fellow panelists at the upcoming VCIA annual conference. The Vermont Captive Insurance Association has moved their annual event entirely online this year, and it will be held 11th to the 13th of August. It promises to be a really excellent event with loads of insightful presentations. And on the 11th, I will be moderating a session on the economic landscape and your captive investment portfolio with Colin Donovan, president of Styco Mutual Insurance Risk Retention Group, and Scott Mildrum, economic and macro strategist at Performer. 
Scott and I have led this session for the past three years now, and it was great to welcome Colin to this year's panel to provide some detailed captive owner perspective. VCIA being virtual this year provides a quite unique opportunity for those perhaps further afield to attend for the first time, and a link for more information and registration is in the episode description. Scott, first question to you. What are some of the unique challenges the pandemic is posing to you know a, a country's economies and to uh, investors as well yeah one of the biggest challenges going forward is the amount of uncertainty created by covid you know we're accustomed to living in a world with uncertainty going about our daily lives making decisions and choices without complete information a global pandemic however has dramatically amplified uncertainty in both our personal and professional lives You know, today, COVID remains the single most important factor to the economic outlook and the single biggest source of uncertainty. To date, some countries and states have shown the ability to reopen economies safely. Meanwhile, we're seeing improvements in treatments and are are encouraged by that. And experts remain confident that we'll get an eventual vaccine. On the flip side, the recent surge in cases in the United States of America and the subsequent reversal of some of the reopening measures remind us that ample work is left to be done. It is exactly this type of extraordinary amount of uncertainty that will present challenges for investors going forward. Thanks, Scott. That's a nice update to kind of set some context for us. Um, we're going to hear much more about that in the in the VCI panel with some great statistics um, and kind of picturing kind of what this all looks like. Colin, perhaps could you tell us a little bit about Styco, its structure, and and kind of what and for who it ensures? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Styco was formed in 1988 as a group captive for manufacturers of storage tanks, particularly storage tanks that are holding oil, gas chemicals, uh, things that can leak or explode. And in the 80s, they had no way of, uh, basically the insurance market for it dried up. They were unable to find pollution coverage anywhere. So a group of manufacturers joined together and formed their own uh, insurance company to to cover those risks. We've since grown beyond that. Now we're writing not only manufacturers of, of tanks and vessels and uh, under pressure and not for oil and gas and chemicals, but we've expanded into food, beverage, uh, pharmaceuticals as well. Um, so companies that will manufacture the tanks or install them or service them or uh, make component parts for them and so on. So we're set up as a mutual. Our members own the company and uh, and therefore, you know, our, our policy forms are very written very broadly and we try to offer as much coverage as possible to our owners. Um, we also, uh, as any insurance company does, want to make sure that we keep a close eye on our investment portfolio uh, to cover claims when they come in. Uh, fortunately, we don't have a lot of claims, uh, but when we do, we got to make sure that sometimes they can be quite large. And some, so we got to make sure that we have we have the wherewithal to uh, to cover those claims and not leave our uh, our owners hanging out to dry. Yeah. So on, on the uh, investment strategy then which you touched upon, how has the pandemic changed how you think about the investment strategy, um, if at all? The point of an investment policy statement is to it should be flexible enough to to be appropriate in good markets and in bad. Um, and while the pandemic that that we're going through has certainly raised stress level regarding investments and, and what's going to happen to them in, in the near term, 
we feel confident that our investment policy statement is, is written broadly enough and gives us enough wiggle room and room for tweaks to be able to tweak it without necessarily overhauling our whole investment strategy. So to answer your question, we haven't, uh, we haven't done a lot of changing <laughs> to the portfolio uh, as a result of this pandemic. In fact, at the start of the year, and we touch on this during the panel, start of the year, we are considering making a change to, li- to be a little bit more risky to capture more uh, return on the portfolio. And it's probably a good thing we didn't. And so, you know, our view is that there's a reason why you have an investment policy statement. And if you go changing it based on what the markets are doing, then you don't have a very good investment policy statement. We've been trying to stick to that discipline and uh, haven't done a lot. We're just kind of biding our time, hoping for the best. It's a tough it's a tough market for sure. Um, the equity side is coming back. Fixed income, which makes up the mo- majority of our portfolio, hasn't been coming back as, as quickly. But um, we feel in the long term, uh, we're going to be okay. Great. Thanks for that insight, uh, Colin. That's, that's really, really useful. Scott, just lastly then, what do investors need to be looking out for in, in the coming months? Are there any uh, particular key indicators they should be keeping an eye on? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we touch on a few of these in the panel and show you some some charts and graphs, but um, investors will certainly remain focused on virus data. So we're talking about confirmed cases, hospitalization rates, mortality rates, and the like as this pandemic continues to wreak havoc. Away from virus data, um, we've turned to more high-frequency type indicators, um, and we're looking at things like Uh, restaurant reservations, mobility data, how many people are willing to get back on an airplane. As we try to gauge, you know, the consumer's willingness to re-engage post-lockdowns. And then finally, um, you know, labor market data is going to be at a premium. You know, back in, you know, March, April in particular, you know, we saw a historic meltdown in labor markets with tens of millions of people losing their jobs in a single month. Uh, And we're going to keep a close eye on labor market data going forward to see if we're making any progress um, as we try to recover from that historic meltdown. The Global Captive podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast where I am with Ward Ching from Aon. Ward, we've we've talked about existing captive owners in that first half and, and then maximizing their potential uh, with their captive. I'd be interested to hear from you, particularly, you know, being based on the West Coast, where are you seeing interest from clients that haven't got a captive previously? We tend to tend to assume that the largest companies in the world, I think it's 97% of the Fortune 100, I think, have a captive. But where are you seeing you know, new interest uh, in captives? What kind of sectors or what kind of companies? First of all, I think that that um, the large account space has been significantly penetrated by captives since the you know the early 1980s. 
so you're right. The Fortune 500 companies all have one or more captives. They may have uh, domestic as well as foreign captives. Some of that came or it was organized organically, or some of it was a function of mergers and acquisitions. And you might recall too that many corporations got involved with Ace and Excel and Coda yeah. and others as a result of capacity shifts in the marketplace. So I would say the large account space is fairly well penetrated. And the issue there is about advantage. How do they use their captives to create either capacity or new advantage in terms of their businesses? The next major space is in the middle market, where you're seeing somewhere between 750000 to maybe $5 million in premium. Uh, these are clients that are starting to take higher retentions. They're starting. They have risk management capability. Many of them do. Uh, and they are interested in the question of how do I be, become more efficient with respect to my T-Core spend? Um, so you're see, you've seen a, a plethora of group captives in the marketplace, many of them, most of them actually, in Cayman, um, that write ALGL and Comp together. They're squared out. Some of these are homogeneous. Some of them are heterogeneous. Some of them are extraordinarily large, like the raffles. And, and what they're doing is catering to that next generation of of risk retention players, those that have good loss ratios, those that are not willing to, to just trade with the marketplace uh, on a first dollar or low retention basis. Um, they're looking for a way to think about and deploy um, self-insurance a little bit more specifically. So large market space is still there. Middle market space is coming on stream. Uh, and then what I'm seeing with respect to new verticals, clearly the digital economy space which is everything from you know rideshare to uh, personal mobility to subscription programs to cryptocurrency uh, and uh, other digital asset types of programs coming on stream, uh, mainly because they're seeing captives as a way to generate capacity for lines of coverage that they cannot get in the marketplace. So and they need these coverages like digital crime coverages, um, enhanced uh, cyber coverages. As, as a result of their business model. So if you think about occupational accident coverage, which is a substitute for workers' compensation and then the digital employee space, it's an interesting innovation that doesn't necessarily really uh, fly in the conventional marketplace. There are carriers that are out there, but there are huge retention opportunities and, and companies are saying, if I do my math correctly, and, and I deploy correct loss control, safety, and communications and align it with senior leadership expectations, I have a better chance of, of succeeding with my business model. Um, so, so I'm seeing in, in, that, in digital economy space, I'm seeing it in, in any space where there's a lot of new uses of data. So think about banking, think about, think about healthcare, um, think about financial markets, think about real estate, think about, interestingly enough, construction. Where, where captives are being formed or they're being redeployed to take advantage of the information that they have. Now, as I said in the first part of our session, I'm encouraging clients to become the underwriters of choice. In other words, do the math, understand how the math impacts them, and use the captive as, as a strategic tool. Um, I'm expecting to see more of that happen as we go forward as clients, uh, whether they're new or, or established legacy clients, are asking different questions about their spend on their total cost of risk. So I, I expect to see ex exciting times ahead, especially now when we see so much disruption in the marketplace and, and the need for coverage, the need for capacity, the need for appropriate pricing.
Yeah, a really interesting ward. And one of the, I'm really pleased you mentioned group captives there and, and Raffles Insurance uh, specifically because we actually had a, a member of Raffles on the podcast in episode 32 or 33. I'm not entirely sure. It was 32 or 33. So only a few weeks ago, and we had Jim Limecooler, who's CEO of Progressive Produce, which actually is an LA-based company. And they're, they've been a member of Raffles for about 14 years, I believe. And they featured on the podcast a few weeks ago. So definitely do go back and, and check that out if you want to find out more about group captives and raffles and, and you mentioned there about kind of new tech companies ward and i know that you work with a lot of these companies particularly being based where you are how how do you see kind of these these fast growing emerging tech and obviously not just emerging lots of very very large established tech companies how does their use of captives differ if at all or their philosophy about using captives differ if at all from other old-fashioned or traditional sectors they wouldn't like me to call them old-fashioned of course right right um they're they're actually um employing some of the same logic that the legacy captive environment has been employing in other words should i be taking retentions if i do take retentions how do i fund them are there lines of coverage that i cannot get in the marketplace economically so what do i do um i may not have enough capacity in a particular line to fit my business model or my growth expectations, how do I use my captive to create that capacity? Um, the other thing that many of them are doing is saying, if I think about my business as a bit more open source, where my customers are telling me about where my business should go, where my products and services should service them, can I build some additional capacity or, or security around what I'm doing for my customer to make it easier for my customer to work with me? So they're, they're looking at the third party side of the business specifically, and they're looking at it very early. Most legacy captives think about third party um, after they get more mature, right? After, after, after they've solved the risk finance questions for the parent. Well, these captives are thinking very differently because their life cycles are different. They, they're, they're at a different speed. They may be um, in an M&A condition uh, in two years, three years. Some of them are with captives and they haven't made a profit yet. So they, they are looking at their life cycles differently and they're using captives as an enhancement to either their growth or their M&A or the opportunity to pick up another company. They're looking at their data and they're saying, I've got tons and tons of client data. I know what my client is looking to purchase, or I know what their what their what their behaviors look like. Can I cater to those behaviors within the footprint of my business model more efficiently by bringing a a portfolio of insurance based products to the table? Can I enhance, for example, lending to my customers with an insurance based product? Can I bring BOP? Uh, business uh, programs to the table for my smaller customer base. So they're thinking differently about what their customer customer needs are and using potentially captives as a way to house those solutions. And oh, by the way, they don't have to be in-house solutions. They could use a captive and bolt on a series of affinity-related products and services or, or essentially portals into other insurance avenues and port those to their customers as opposed to building everything themselves. So so they're thinking very differently about how do you structure um, a pathway to the customer? How do you monetize that pathway? How do you create a stickier customer relationship? And the captive's sitting in the middle of that. 
Yeah, so it's really good to hear on the third party uh, conversation. And it, and I, I understand as well, I imagine that, you know, once you add that level of third party, underwriting third party risk into a captive, it also just helps the captive to grow and become more sophisticated at a much faster rate than we're probably used to in the past, because it's adding that diversified income. But it's one of the drivers as well, Ward, for these companies into the, into the captive market, that the traditional market just does not have the solutions or the kind of insight or data, which which can provide the correct kind of insurance products because some so many of these companies have you know think about something like ride sharing it's a very different type of kind of motor portfolio risk to be providing to the market so is there also an element that the captive just needs to be there from the beginning or very early on to meet the insurance needs of the, of the company you're, you're absolutely right um, for something like rideshare which is now much more mature mm. uh, when when uber and lyft and others were in the early stages and they were growing so dramatically and they were they were entering new markets and they were confronting regulatory issues and they were in battle with with established rideshare types of organizations the question is how do you how do you get the right coverages uh, and what are those coverages uh, the, the traditional insurance market understood motor coverage. They understood the liability coverage. But this is a different business model. It, it, where was the insurable risk? Uh, when, when do claims actually occur and how might they occur? How does that change in a regulatory structure where there may be high, low, or indifferent uh, legislative issues or litigation issues? And so the market was just didn't have the data. Neither did the companies, but they had a business model. And what happened was they got together with firms like ours and, and they asked the question, if we were to simulate this position, what could the loss conditions look like? And could we create a hypothetical model around those loss conditions and build pricing around that? And the answer is, yes, you can. So, so early on, there was a lot of, a lot of simulation work around with, with very limited data. Um, around what the, the supply chain issues look like. So when, a, when you pick up a customer, when they get in the car, when they're in motion, when you drop off, except what are the loss probabilities across that um, supply chain, if you will, and, and, and then create pricing around that. That's where captives came into play because they were saying, there is no market. I need to create my own market. I need to curate this in the marketplace. Maybe a carrier will come in at a very high excess layer just to be able to see pricing, just to be able to see the data uh, and learn. Um, same sort of situation in cyber, remember 10 years ago? But but the idea is is they, they are moving very, very quickly and the intent is is to create new market. And, and more importantly, it's, it's to prosecute their business plan uh, because many of them have uh, new capital sitting in behind them and that new capital is restless. It wants to generate a return not just build out of an infrastructure. So again, captives, captives are being used and analysis are being used to really drive that, that process. Great. Yeah, really, really interesting, Ward, and, and definitely a topic I, I'm keen for us to talk about at greater length in the future. I think we can have some great conversations in the podcast around uh, the kind of tech, you know, new tech type use of, of, of captive. So I look forward to doing that. But that's all we have time for for this recording, I'm afraid. And thank you to all of our guests. We had uh, Scott Mildrum from Performer, Colin Donovan at Styco. Please do look out for the VCIA session that we'll be presenting on the 11th of August. And the link is in the episode description. And of course, thank you to you, Ward. Thank you very much for joining us on the Global Captive Podcast. Richard, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, Captives.